In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Cami here. Welcome to this episode of Money Tales. Today, Sandy and I talk with Joe Gagnon. Joe is the creator of The High Performance Life, a philosophy and guide to learn techniques for mental toughness, creative problem solving, leadership, and personal effectiveness. In our conversation, Joe makes it abundantly clear that this goal-driven approach to life has fueled him to achieve success in all areas of life, family, money, and physical endurance, including successfully running six marathons across six continents over six consecutive days. Hi, this is Sandy. You should also know that Joe grew up in the Bronx. His father was a social worker and they had to save every dime, literally. He went on to achieve career success as a young consulting partner at Ernst & Young and ultimately decided that he was missing purpose in his life. That led Joe to create a series of personal fitness and career goals that have taken him up and down the chutes and ladders of life ever since always striving to better himself and those around him. As you'll hear, one thing that has remained true for Joe across all of his endeavors is maintaining the discipline to always save money along the way. Money Tales is brought to you by Asperian, a leading independent wealth management firm where we passionately believe in the importance of having money conversations. Now on to our interview with Joe Gangnon. Joe Gangnon, welcome to Money Tales. It's great to have you here. Oh, what a pleasure. Thanks, Cammie. Thanks, Sandy, for having me today. Super. Well, we'd like to start, give you a little opportunity to introduce yourselves, if you could share a bit about your life journey and what got you to this moment, maybe a couple pivotal moments. That'd be helpful. Yeah. Well, without trying to bore everyone on the call, I do like to say that I was born in Vermont because I like to feel like I'm a Vermonter because I was, but I spent the formative years of my life growing up just outside New York City. In the Bronx, I went to school, both high school and college. And so I think that had a lot to do with, we grew up to this lower to middle income kind of family. My dad was a social worker and we had a wonderful life. We didn't know that eating out once a year was a big deal or not. It was just, we had fun. We were kids. And as I went through, I started working when I was 14. I had a paper out, McDonald's at 16, grocery store 17, department store 18. I worked through college to pay for half of my college. And I actually graduated a long, long time ago in the middle of a massive recession, just hoping to get a job. And I started off with this glorious salary of $14,000 a year working in the mayor's office in New York City. And it was... Uh, Everything I could do to smile, but it wasn't really the most. You hit that moment, like I did all this, paid for this, and this is what I got. But 
over time, you know, it's sort of easier to write the story looking backwards than forwards, but I always felt like it's either the beginning or the end. And I tried to make it the beginning, not the end, right? It was like, that wasn't going to be the end of where I was going to go. And two weeks into the job, it got a little harder. My car was stolen. My girlfriend broke up with me. I had to move back into my parents' basement. And I, <laughs> oh, no. I was like, oh God, now what? Sounds like a song, Joe. I, yeah, right. Exactly. That's what I should do. But I knew that I had one thing going for me all the time, that I would be willing to outwork everyone. And if I put everything I had into it, I would get a return. And that's what sort of started to happen. And people noticed from one job to the next. And I don't know, I ended up at Ernst & Young and I made partner there when I was 35 years old, which was, a, I guess, sort of in one way, thinking about a shock. That was like what happened to other people, you know, not to me. But it was a good journey. The career just kept flourishing from there, working with some amazing people. And of course, we can get back to the story a little bit later on, but there's lots of sort of ups and downs around both what you do financially, what were we planning, Anthea and I. We had two girls who are now adults. How are we going to take care of them? What were the responsibilities we had? And really how we thought about money really did matter. It really mattered. And I think we were very explicit in our lives about how we were going to use it. And there was never going to be this big surprise. Oh, what did you do? Or how did that happen? So it's turned out pretty well. At the end of the story, it's quite satisfying, but there's some fun parts in the middle. Sounds like we can get there, which is great. Could I dig a little bit deeper into the time growing up with your dad? Your dad was working as a social worker, as a family. How do you all talk about money? How do you deal with money? You were obviously taught to work very hard and you had jobs right away, but are you talking about money in your youth? Not really. The only way that money ever came up was when high school came around and it was this decision whether they could afford to send us to Catholic school. My mother wanted us to go to Catholic school and that was a big deal. My father had to take a second job. I don't even think it was $1,000 a year, but that was a lot of money to us. And when I did, I actually went to school, as I said, in the Bronx. We were living in Yonkers. And I remember very distinctly, I had to take three buses to get there. But if you walked across the bridge from the Bronx to Yonkers, you could save 10 cents. And so we used to do that every day. But every once in a while, the bus would start coming while you were walking across the bridge. And you have to run, try and catch it to save 10 cents. And so we learned early on that those little amounts made a difference. We didn't talk about it explicitly. My father never said how much money he made. But what we always were learning was that money was about choices. And if you were very explicit about that, then you might allow yourself then to make a different choice. You know, if you saved something, then you could spend it. If you never thought about it, then it seemed to just go away. And so it wasn't casual in that regard. If you were going to get a new blazer for high school was going to be the one you were getting for a long time. So you really were going to be thoughtful about that expense. I got a bicycle when I was like 15 and my friend borrowed it and it got stolen. I didn't get another one. So we knew we didn't have enough. That's why we were working and, and we saved as much as we could. 10 cents here, 25 cents there. I didn't end up with any kind of big war chest when I went off to college. Joe, at that time when you were growing up and you were experiencing family life with limited means. Did you project into the future about money at all? What I knew was that you had to work. I knew that. There was no gift of some sort, some way out. So I think that was probably the most explicit part about money was that you were going to work and you were going to save money and you were going to go to college. That was the thing, as we say today. And that was really what our heads were wrapped around. And so 
the back to that, what do you control? Do something about what you can control and make it the best you can. But don't have this expectation that something's going to happen in your favor without you doing something about it. So, and, and we never felt like we didn't have enough, but we certainly knew we weren't on the high end of the spectrum. We knew people who had more money than us, but that was fine. I think it later on, Sandy, when I got into college and I started meeting guys who wanted to go to work on Wall Street, that's when I started thinking about, oh, hmm, wow, what would you go make later on? That's probably the first time it really started coming together. Joe, was that a financial decision? When you're hearing about people moving and pursuing careers on Wall Street, was the first thing that came to your mind, oh, this is exciting because I can make more? Or this is exciting because this would be challenging me? No, no, it was definitely about making more money. That was the that sort of go-go days, you know, when the blue suits and the red ties or the yellow tie and you were going to hang out at the South Street Seaport and have an extra beer because you had more money. That was an enabler of that lifestyle, which was pretty cool. Now, I was not in that because I didn't make that kind of money. You know, $20, you were pretty excited about it. But I didn't feel like it wouldn't turn one day. I just always had this sort of generally optimistic opinion that at some point, this whole story would come together. I just didn't know how other than believing that that would be the case. And so when you started in the mayor's office before your car was stolen, before you moved back in with mom and dad, what did that feel like? I mean, because you'd been working up until that point, but presumably your wages were a step up from your prior work experience. It was, but it was unionized. I didn't feel that this was an aspirational group of people. The whole concept, you know, was upside down in the way I found city government to spend money, to manage people. It was actually disconcerting. I just didn't enjoy it really because, you know, there were people who didn't do any work and would come in and they still got paid. And I'm there trying to sort of, you know, make my way. So I knew it wasn't my future. I knew I was going to have to go do something else because there didn't feel to be that ambition, right? This was just a job. And I wanted to be ambitious, to do more, to, you know, Anthea says when she met me when I was 25 years old, I told her, I still don't believe I did this. I told her I was going to one day be a CEO. And I'm like, really said that at 25? Wow, that was bold. But I had something in me that made me want to do more. You know, I think my mother just used to say, oh, you can do more, you can do more, you can do more. So I'm like, okay, then I will one day. Was it your mom who taught you this willingness to work harder than anyone else? Yeah. My father never complained about work and he would work six or seven days a week. But my mother would always be that driver. You can do better than that. There was no question in my mind. Like I always said to her, what did you do to me? Why did you like make that happen? But later on, you realize that I think that people often think that privilege is something granted. And I think privilege is earned. And I think you can earn, if we like the word privilege, and what does that mean? That means you get to make choices, choices that others can't make. But I don't think that has to be given to you. And I did learn that if I was going to have privilege, I was going to go make that happen. Just might have taken a little longer than someone else, but I was confident in that outcome would come to the right place with the right effort. So you move forward in your career. You head to Ernst & Young. You make partner by age 35, which is a pretty quick track. Success. 
early. What was that like? It's a little crazy. And life has totally changed, right? You'd have to have lived through that life to understand. They had an event for new partners. We flew out to Arizona, Anthea and I. They treated you like royalty for a weekend. It's a private company. You can do what the heck you want, right? You find out your income earning potential is completely disproportionate to anything that's happened to you before. You're truly in this club. And at the same time, you got to go out and sell and deliver and make your contribution. But it felt like a bit of a fantasy that that had happened. And it was like, whoa, what just happened to me? Because I'd never expected this. And in the way that E&Y worked, it was get a draw during the year. And then at the end of the year, December 3rd or 4th, whatever it was, you'd get this statement and it told you what your earnings were for the year. And you'd look at it like, oh, (laughs) wow, that was something. How did that happen? And, you know, and it happened year after year and you end up, you can make a million dollars in a year and you're like, this sort of crazy. And then when I turned 40, it had been on a pretty good path for a while and Kids were growing up and we can go back to like some other elements of financial discipline that we had. But I realized at that point that this was the greatest rut of my life. I was like, this can't be what the next 50 years is like, you know, because you sort of seem to have satisfied all the things that everyone like would have expected. You know, you have great income, you got all the material goods, you got the family, you got a great job, you got all this stuff going. And I was like, oh. I guess that money thing is nice, but it isn't everything. Now, it's an enabler, and I've been very fortunate that that's all worked in my favor. And I know this is about money, but I will say that I've worked more in the past years around purpose than just financial security. Now, once you have financial security, that's easier to think about. But nonetheless, it wasn't in that totally satisfying way that some might think that you just sort of sit there and you just smile and you're done. I have too much still to do. But the path from when finally got married and then we had kids and then the decisions that we made, those are probably before were some of the core elements, I think, that what really made overall our financial life better. Joe, will you talk about that? It sounds like you and your wife were very intentional. You had conversations about financial decisions. Will you share with us where you were in those? Was it from the very beginning? What were the conversations you had? What created the stability in your relationship? Well, the funny thing is when I met her, she had more money than me, which is sort of cute. I had a car and she had $17,000. I'm like, oh, wow, she's rich. And so she was very frugal. And I was maybe a little less frugal in the beginning. But what we did was we decided that we were going to have joint goals and we wanted to get a condo and we were living in Hoboken at the time and I had to take the PATH train into New York City. And I realized back to my sort of saving a few pennies, if I walked to the PATH train, I could save 25 cents. If I didn't buy the newspaper, I could save another 25 cents. If I did that every day and then we didn't go out to dinner every week and we made other choices about cutting coupons that we could probably save $20,000 in a year starting, you know, at that very sort of everyone thinks doesn't make a difference level. Yes, it does make a difference because it becomes a mindset if the goal was. And that's what we did. In a little over a year, we were able to save $20,000 between us that could have easily just washed away in life. You wouldn't have even probably felt like you had a better life. It was very explicit decision 
that we looked at both each other and always said, okay, how are you spending money? Are you spending money? We we're totally in alignment. And that was, I think, part of the beginning of what, you know, I think some great Navy SEAL once said that discipline creates freedom and didn't know that, but that discipline that we had really made a difference. So we got that. We were able to buy a condo, which by the way, when we sold it, we lost, I think like $30,000 on it. So, Bummer. You know, we kept going like that Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, you know, back to the belly of the whale, like, oh God, do we have to go through this again? I thought we already had a trouble, but that's just how it happens sometimes. You know, you can't predict how life happens. And so then when the girls were born, we decided we were going to save for college and both of us were working. And then after like four months of working, Anthea said, I'd rather stay home and take care of the girls. And said, okay. And we cut our income in half. And we had this goal now of saving money for college and having half the family income. And that went back to the discipline again, which is okay. Well, we'll just stay at home with the kids. No big vacations. Keep the car that you have and just start saving. $100 a month, $200 a month, $400 a month over the years till Julianne's 18. We have enough money to send her to university and have her not have to pay for it. And then the same with Kimberly. That was the gift we wanted to give them. But I think people sometimes think both 18 years is too far away to do something. It's too long. And, oh, it probably wouldn't matter anyway. Why don't we wait till later? There is no time like today, literally, to start saving. If you're 90, you can still. It's just irresponsible to not build a foundation financially because you don't know, maybe you'll get laid off, maybe the world will turn upside down, or maybe, who knows? What really was fascinating, what I found was that when you take the risk out of the system, there is no risk left. So if you really work hard and you save money, then nothing seems to go bad. Because even if it did, you don't have the perception, but when you live a life of risk where you have no savings and you can't do anything, you're then in this situation where anything that happens is just tragic. So it's, it's a really interesting juxtaposition that changes the way you feel. And then like, it's like, oh, wow. So why did life go so easy in a sense? Like, why did it not feel like? Now, no one in the middle ever says that, right? It's the definition of a good life is when the days are long and the years are short. And that happens when you're putting everything into it. Now, you may have made some choices that others didn't want to make, but but boy, in the long run, you end up like shoots and ladders kind of thing. And you go up the ladders and it's, it's crazy how well it pays off over time. Joe, let's talk more about the ladders, right? So it sounds like you and Anthea had really an easy time having conversations and setting goals around money. You were really good savers. You were very intentional about your spending. And here you are now creating some career success. Your income is going through the roof. Did your life change when that happened? Oh, it's a great question. At some level, we did afford ourselves some nice vacations. We decided when Julianne was eight that we were going to, before she turned 18, visit all 50 states together. So we set out on that path. But when we would go on a vacation, we would still make choices. The girls were tiny. So you don't need two iced teas. Maybe they should just share it. We could all stay in one room in the hotel. We 
don't need to eat the hotel breakfast. You can go to the grocery store and buy yogurt and cereal yourself and save money. And so everything always was choices. And every time you made those choices, even in the context of enjoying your life, you still were able to save. And so I like to count stuff. I like streaks. I like goals. They're very satisfying. And so one of the other goals was, okay, well, Anthony wanted me to buy life insurance. I'm like, fine. But once but I'm going to set a different goal and I'm going to stop paying for life insurance, which is I want to save enough money so that if I die, you could live for 10 years and cover all our costs and not have to work at any time. So that was another, like, so let's go save money there and let's have our costs in our life align with that so that we didn't have that risk. And so we would always decide now, you know, later on, I got into cycling and all this stuff, and I would buy a bicycle and probably bought more than you needed. But it was always in the truly, after all, everything else was met, then I went and did that. Because then it was sort of rounding errors in a sense. But we also were always wary of the girls feeling like they lived a life of privilege. So we made them work for it. And other than paying for college, and I'll tell you a funny quick story in a second, but they want to take care of themselves. They don't want gifts. They don't want our money. They don't want any of them. They just want to be independent like we were. And when you role model behavior, we know that's the best way to teach. Absolutely. Did you want to tell a story? Well, you know, first, Kimberly, when I don't, I don't let's say she was 13 or 14 years old, she said, Dad, it's much easier to spend money than to make it. So I'm going to save my money. And so she had this little ATM machine in her room and it had a pin code and a card and she put all her money in there and made it too hard to get it out. So she never took it out. And then <laughs> when she got to 18 and went out to lunch or something with her friends, she would say, well, but mine costs $3.94. I don't care what everyone else costs. I'm paying for mine. So she was always managing her money. And then Julia, my oldest daughter, she loves being independent and doesn't want, so we only can give her money two times a year, Christmas and on her birthday. Rest of the year, she's like, I don't need your gifts. I don't need your money. That's yours. I'm doing this on my own. And you sort of say like, well, how did you get there? Because isn't that one of the hardest things? It goes back to what I believe you want to teach in life is independence and autonomy. And so you give them the choices and you give them the power and then they understand the responsibility of that. And that's what we did throughout because they always participated with us in those decisions. And I think probably around the time they were 18 years old, we started talking about how much money we have so that they would understand that. What was it like to do that, Joe? I thought it was very liberating. They didn't really understand it totally because uh, how do you connect with that? But it was open for dialogue. That's what we wanted to do. And then I helped them build out their own savings account initially, and then an investment account, and then help guide them and continue to share back and forth on the responsibility you have around your own financial life. And I don't think my father wouldn't have told me if I had asked, but we never knew to ask. And so I think that having that open dialogue is important because then then in a sense, you're empowering them. I know we don't really become adults until prefrontal cortex fully developed with 23 or 24 years old, but the more you trust and empower young adults, the more they give back to you. They are very responsible when we give them a bit of that autonomy 
and they're not when we take it away. And so I was always for, I believe you'll make the right decision. Here you go. Here's money to use at college. I don't need you to tell me how you're using it. Here's the credit card. Just, and it didn't get used. I was never abused. But I think it was all that foundation work leading up to that, which was what we all did together. So Joe, I know your story, or I know some of it. So I'm going to ask a leading question. You must still be working at Ernst & Young because you're risk-averse, hardworking. <laughs> you must still be working there. Could you tell us what got you to where we are today? Oh my God, right. That's too funny. So I was at EMY 10 years, and I ran into this guy, John Connolly, and he was an entrepreneur, and he and a couple other of us decided that maybe we should start a new company in this consulting space. And so I started talking to him about practically, I said, but you know, how could you ever afford me? He said, oh, I can't, but you're going to come work here anyway. And so, yeah, and, and you know, I share numbers not because they're about ego. They're facts that help all of us get grounded in reality. So make a million dollars in 1999 at Ernst & Young. And John offers me $200,000, still a fabulous amount of money to come work at this company called Mainspring. And it's an $800,000 pay cut. I don't think that that's something not to be, or it's not to be trivialized. And so I talked to Anthony and she's like, sure, you know, if that's what you want to do, we can, the family can adjust. We adjusted before we'll adjust to this new way. And, you know, it was with this idea, oh, well, we'll have some ownership and equity and all of that. And it's going to be a great run. And, you know, equity turned out not to be worth anything, but we did take the company public and sold it to IBM and we created new job opportunities for people. And, but it was a theme that I started to play, which was, I was more interested in the kind of work I was going to go do, the opportunity for growth, than just pure salary. So then I went to IBM, I spent there and I went, my earning income went, potential went back up. And then I left there to go be the CEO of this company for Exit 41. I then again, 50% pay cut to go take that job. But you're CEO. You fulfilled your promise to your wife. I know. I had actually turned down a CEO job before that, which is actually one of the more satisfying moments in one's life. Because then you know you're not doing it for ego, right? You're doing it for the right reason. My friends always told me, or even up till today, they say, I you know, I sub-optimized my income earning potential in my career, but I maximized my purpose and my life experience in my career. But look, Maslow's hierarchy played in. I took care of basic needs and then some. And so then at that point, do you need to just keep doubling down? Is that the only thing you want to count? Like keep looking at your mint account every day? Eh, it's not enough. So, so yeah, I learned that while it matters, it's not the only part of one's life. And I think that it's great to keep earning so that one day you can give it away and be charitable. That's great. But there is part of the journey that needs to be satisfying to both your curiosity and your courage. By the way, I would say curiosity and courage where they meet is where magic happens. And so, yeah, to anyone listening, those are the moments that you really, I don't know, go for a walk or meditate or think about really why you would or wouldn't do it. And usually you come back to like, yeah, I should go do that. So what'd you go do? What are you doing now? So the journey has continued with this, became a bit of a turnaround CEO guy, came into some companies and helped them reframe their value proposition in the market. And then three years ago, I was writing this book called Living the High Performance Life. And 
I was looking for a way to end the book. And in so doing, I needed to concoct some big thing. I wanted to climb Mount Everest, but that wasn't going to happen because you have to take off three months from work. And I'm too much of a workaholic to do that. So I came up with this idea that I would run a marathon on six continents in six days. And so what happened was in getting prepared, I met a guy and he had started this product, this consumer product for endurance. And it's a, it's a tea-based product. It's a powder, instant powder. And I used it and it helped me incredibly with my day-to-day fly 12 hours, be in a country 12 hours. And I thought, wow. Just run a marathon while you're there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we thought we should start that company. And so we did that three years ago and that's continued on. And while I'm doing that, I'm always working some other projects on the side. And there's 168 hours in the week. It's a lot of time. If you want to use it wisely, you can do a lot. I write a blog. I have my own podcast. I wrote the book. Run companies, run companies. My athletic achievements have been pretty significant. Remember, I started as a kid working at McDonald's. I was bullied. I didn't even say that before. And I was sort of a nobody. I was uh, invisible in society. And I decided that I didn't want to stay there. And I gave myself enough time and enough patience to be able to use the resources I have and the good judgment I was granted by my parents to, to make decisions. And every one of them, in the totality, right, in the totality, worked in my favor. And that's what I want everyone to believe, that they have that same power. Mine is not unique to me. I mean, it's unique to me, but not unique. So how do you describe your current relationship with money? Oh, that's a great question. I think, Sandy, that I still have this probably belief that I always need to save more because it's always better to have more. Not because of greed. I just don't even use it. But I always feel like that I'll never be able to live with less, not because I need more money, but meaning that I want that security And every time I save more, it feels like I have more security, which gives me more confidence. And so it's, I pay attention to it. You know, I invest, I think, pretty well. I've been a student of sort of the financial world. I do manage risk stuff. So like I take pretty big risks with the career. I go start a company, you put money in, or you work for someone and you have some ownership and it could all be worth zero. But on the other side, wherever I have the capital, I invest it wisely and it's worked out. Now, 2009, 50% of my portfolio went away, had some patience to wait it out, worked out in my favor waiting. But I would say it's a heavy level of respect for how hard it is to earn money, save it, have it, and never sort of waste it in a way that you were just like, oh, I wish I didn't do that. I feel like that's a responsibility. Balances you out. You know, I don't worry really about, I mean, of course, you can worry about COVID. I don't worry about anything, really. I don't have a worry. I won't have gray hair until it's very far into the future. Jody, you talk to your daughters about money. You know, they're professionals, they're older. Do you have any conversations with them? So what I learned as the girls became adults was that they were adults. <laughs> what I mean by that is, I think sometimes we still try to be parents, but they're adults. They just decide on their own, right? Just like we all want agency, right? We all want it. Like I'm sort of privileged as anyone could ever be. My parents are still alive. My mother will still call me and say, you know, it's snowing out. You shouldn't be driving. I'm like, mom, 
I think I got it. But I thought about that. I'm like, oh, do I do that? Oh, I don't want to do that. That's not, eh, no one likes the way that lands. Even if you can sort of just say, oh, it's my mother. So what I decided with the girls was I was going to stop telling them how I thought they should live and let them live. But what they realize is that I know more about finance than they do. And so we have an agreement, which is that any questions about finance, we'll have a discussion about it. So we do continue and they leverage my knowledge and they're learning and growing in that regard. And we've started talking about the future and what kind of protections we would need to put and what are the state and federal tax laws about inheritance and just getting them to a point where if something happens, they understand. They don't want them sort of surprised. So they know our financial situation. They know how we've taken care of it, what it's about. And then I help them with their investing as well. Mind you, both of them sort of working on projects or work that are not big paying, but they are saving money all the time. And so we do. Now this year we started a new thing, which is as a family, we're going to donate money every month and we're going to pick which cause we donate money to. And so we did it for January. We'll do it for February. And so we then can participate together on another level about how to use money for more than just our own personal purposes. So yeah, it's a good conversation and I'm happy to be a valuable resource in their life on some level. And that's fun to be able to do that. And how did the January giving experience go? What was the biggest takeaway in your opinion? So it was for, interestingly enough, a climbing gym in Memphis called Memphis Rocks. And in South Memphis, it's just, it's terrible. The living conditions, the poverty. And these guys started this climbing gym in an all-black community. And they dedicate this facility to helping kids and adults grow, right? Emotionally, physically, and community-wise. And we just loved their mission. So it was so fun to be able to support them because sometimes we don't do what we would like to do, but we see others doing it. And you're like, that was really fun for us. And we were all very satisfied because they will put it to good use. And that felt very, very satisfying. Sometimes donating like to very big entities, it's not as personal feeling. We were rock climbers, we still are. And so there was also that piece, we loved the idea that you're opening up a sport to people who might not ever have access to it because they'll let people climb for free if they don't have the money. It's very fitting for our DNA. That's great. Sounds like there's an alignment of values, of purpose, of mission. Yeah, which is good, right? Great combination. If you can pair money with that, whether you're saving, you're spending, you're giving it away, I think that's a great combination. And I love that you guys are doing, right? That's a big part of money, doing it, practicing, exercising the muscles are really important. And I think that at one level in our country, there is a very high exposure at that very, very top end. We'll hear about an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos and how much money they have. But once you get below that curiosity thing, it's not a lot of conversation that goes on about money. We're afraid of the conversation and how much people make. When we took that company Mainspring public, my salary was in the S1. And it was interesting to see how people reacted. Like, oh, you make that much? Huh. Kind of thing. You know, it was, I don't care what anyone makes. Hey, amen. Great. I hope it's the right value for what you do. But I think we've 
turns it a little bit inside out sometimes. And hopefully through what you guys are doing and other conversations like this, it's not meant to say anyone's better. Look, we all are equal partners on this planet, whatever that means, race, creed, religion, culture, every single bit of it, and gender. And and so we should just be happy for each other when everyone chooses to use themselves to accomplish more. Like, wouldn't it be fun to find out your friend was very successful and got recognized financially? That's just one dimension of it. But I don't feel bad if someone has more. Sometimes I feel bad if someone has less. I'd like everyone to be somewhat achieving of it. But this is what we choose to do. And then if we share it, and maybe we'll all know that these decisions matter. It's those decisions that made the difference in the outcome. That's what I keep wanting people to understand. That the reason why I wrote the book wasn't to write about me but it was to give people a storybook that said, yeah, you can start off where most people think that's the end, but it's really the beginning. And then the choices you make are the way that you grant yourself the privilege. Like my father said one time when I took a job, he's like, in a sense, like, what's the worst that could happen? You know, you can move back into the basement again. (laughs) Amen. You know, like, yeah, you're right. That isn't the worst possible outcome. And I can then grow back from that and go back at it again. And if you're indefatigable, right, untiring, if that's the way you live life, then you have plenty of time, you have plenty of resource, and people will want you around to participate in their journey because they'll make their life better, and then it all just comes together. And it's just so interesting how we sometimes miss that that's the forest of the trees here. I just want, I guess, hopefully people on your podcast to embrace that themselves for their benefit. If I'm a living example of that, then, then it was worth it for more than the reason that it served my purpose. Joe, you are a marathoner and an ultramarathoner. How in the world did you get into this? Oh my God. Yeah. So why did I do that? When I found myself at that junction of the best rut of my life, I knew that I needed more dimensions to my life. And I had sort of given up being an active person. I became a workaholic of sorts took care of the family and that's all I did. But I realized that a strong body carries a strong mind. And if you're not fit at whatever level that is, you need that strength and that power. And so, so I started on this journey 20 years ago with run one mile and do 10 push-ups, And then the next year I was like, well, what if I run five miles? And then the next year, what if I enter a race, a 10K? And then the next year, what if I work out four days in a week? And then next year and it just kept on building and building and then I finally got this inspiration that I would try to do a triathlon and then I said oh well maybe I can try and do the Ironman triathlon and I always gave myself long horizons like five years and so I would just train and people say well I don't have time for that I'm like well you know what I started doing was just getting up earlier in the morning and I kept holding myself accountable to that 168 hours in the week if you don't think you can come up with 10 hours that are yours in a week you're doing something wrong We all, every one of us, owe it to ourselves to take care of ourselves at some level. You don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of your family, you can't take care of work. And so 10 hours out of 168 is not being selfish at all. It's actually really important. So I did that, and sometimes I got up to 20 hours or 25 hours a week, but I would just get up earlier. By the way, no one wants to talk to you at 5 o'clock in the morning anyway, so like literally my time. So I learned to sleep a little less. get up earlier. And so I fit the training in and it just was very satisfying. Oh my God, you don't need 
any kind of supplement if you have dopamine. You know, neurotransmitters are what it's at. The hardest part of COVID was our serotonin levels are really low because we're not interacting with people. We're not hugging. We love that feeling because of serotonin, another neurotransmitter. They are the essence of why we behave the way we do. You know, it hurts a little bit here and there and there's a soreness. And, but that can't be the excuse. I hold myself completely accountable to myself. When you do that, you don't really let anyone else down because you don't let yourself down. So if you say you're going to do something, are you going to do it or not? Like you're the one who made that decision. Why would you decide not to? I'm like intently curious. Like when I did the six continent thing, I was so curious to find out what would those lows feel like? I wrote this note, the lows will be the highs. I wanted to know what that would feel like. Truth is, I didn't find anything low enough because the other stuff is just noise, like your ankle hurts or you're tired. It's like noise. It's not real. There is stuff that's real. Don't lose your curiosity. Have courage. Get yourself into the right community. Oh, we haven't talked about this. I know we'll run out of time soon, but who you hang out with really matters. Our behavior, we're really good at modeling behavior off other people. So I hung out with some really cool people who wanted to help me who in their own lives were very successful. And I was like, oh, I sort of want to be like that. And I learned from them. So, so those is another choice. Back to choices. Who do you hang out with? It'll make a difference. And, you know, if, if there's nothing else in the theme here, it's you're in charge. If agency makes a difference and be happy with it. Joe, I appreciate all your perspectives. And I think all of these lessons that you've learned and the mindset and ideas that you bring to life are truly relevant as it relates to money and how we utilize money in our life. And that there's things beyond money that are really important. And you're right, the people that we spend time with and the purpose and things that matter most to us should be at the front of our minds at all times. And I'm just curious, Joe, You've done so many things in your life. What haven't you done yet that you want to do? I still have this idea that aging is about stopping using the resources that you have. And that's when aging starts, right? Because if you keep instigating your brain through thinking like, mm, I'm going to research stuff about the best stock to buy, or you instigate your body by saying, I'm going to go walk around the block or play tennis or go to CrossFit, whatever, I don't care. The body reacts and the mind reacts very well to that. And when it stays active, it's very productive. And so one of the things I'm curious about and want to keep figuring out is for how long can that go? For how long can we sort of keep functionality really high? And yeah, we'll all die. Amen. I get that part. But that end should be really short from high function to end should be short. Living a better life, not necessarily a longer life, is what we should shoot for. And so that's one of the things that I'm working towards, which is to keep functionality at every level, physical, mental, emotional, high throughout life. The second thing I haven't really done enough of is donate more of my time to people who could benefit from what I've learned. I do that with mentoring with the people that I work with and others, but I think that that should become a more significant part of my life at some point. And then I have, of course, some ridiculous ideas about other big physical challenges to go take on. I'm still working on what those all turn out to be, but I get a lot of satisfaction out of that 
annual goal setting. By the way, when I said about you know, hanging out with smart people, you might say, well, I don't know anyone. That year, I watched a thousand TED Talks. Okay? I hung out with a thousand really cool smart people by watching their videos on YouTube. But there's no good excuse. You know, I read 52 books the next year so I could learn from smart people. So it isn't always just about physical activity. It's always sort of about the learning. I want to do some collaboration around some interesting opportunities for community improvement and get more people to feel this passion about what's possible. So that's, I think, a bit of a roundabout answer, Sandy, but it's all still forming. But my purpose, if I was to say what that is, it's to help people achieve what they want to achieve in their life. So Joe, who's your next money conversation going to be with and what's it going to be about? Probably with my father, 91 years old, and he is in this challenge between, he did not make much money in his life, but through his pension and annuity, he saved some money. He's been investing very well. He's become like almost a day trader at 91. It's just hilarious. But the balancing act, the way we talk about now is how much money can he or should he donate to charity versus holding on to for, in a sense, his legacy in the family. And so it's a good active discussion because he loves to donate money to relief funds and to people in need. And my mother likes to keep it and he's trying to donate it. So that's the conversation. And it's really interesting because it's, it's a very lively discussion. There's a lot of emotion around it in a good way. He's only trying to invest so he can make money to give it away. Right? That's what his goal is now is to help others. So we have that. That's probably the next conversation this weekend because whenever I see him, we tend to talk about that. So that sounds like a great conversation to have. Yeah, it's fun. It's like we can really engage, you know. And a good reminder that there's always time in life for money conversations. They never, ever end. Absolutely. Yeah. Remember, if we throw this one word into the middle of this whole context, if you start with respect for people, for each other, for everyone, every conversation we have can be productive. Because if you respect someone, there's nothing bad that can come from it. Because you believe in that person, you care for that person, no matter who they are, you never met them. We had more respect in this world. Sometimes we make money into like a place of disrespect, but you can't if you already respect them. So yeah, powerful and empowering. Joe Kenyon, thank you so much for being our guest today. This was a wonderful conversation. We respect everything you're doing. We appreciate you sharing so much with us and are truly inspired by what you're doing to help other people. So keep doing it and keep us posted on what your next challenges are going to be for yourself. All right, I will. And thank you so much. And thanks to your listeners. And I believe in every one of you. And if you ever want to talk to me, just email me, joe at performancetea.com. And I'll be happy to have a conversation and help you any way I can. Thank you, Joe. Take care. What a great conversation. Cammy. tell me what your takeaways were from all the great things that Joe said. He got me really excited and pumped up and interested in setting more goals and achieving more goals. But I, I really loved well, a lot of things. I appreciated his talk about privilege, that it's not granted, it's earned, and that discipline creates freedom. I really thought those were impactful. I was impressed too with what he was saying about discipline and how he and his wife approached the discipline around saving money. 
And that's been a consistent theme for them across their marriage. Even as his financial success became abundant and in times when he deliberately chose a different economic path for the family. Yeah. I think growing up, I think he talked about it being lower income. You would think that someone like that would just keep on this trajectory, being an Ernst and Young partner, super successful, more money than probably he ever imagined. Yet he had the wherewithal to know it wasn't his purpose. And that's amazing. Yeah, I think that's one of the themes that's coming out of a lot of the money tales conversations that we're having with folks is the importance that purpose has on how we approach money. And when we can align purpose and values, it can be so impactful. It can create much better money relationships within ourselves and within our families. One thing I really liked that he addressed, though, was there's there definitely were the needs that he covered before he could be frivolous, maybe, take more risks. And he didn't seem like a risk taker when he was telling this story, but I think he felt comfortable with the numbers. When he got to a point, it's time, wherever the girls were at that age, he seemed comfortable with that, taking on further risk. Yeah. And I also think, Cammy, that one of the things I found inspirational around Joe's comments was his lack of ego, right? Wanting everyone to have enough financial resources, not comparing himself to other people in terms of what he's making or what he's giving. I thought that was really interesting. And it really resonated with something that occurred to me over the weekend. There's a lot of news when we were recording this about Elon Musk topping Jeff Bezos as, as the world's wealthiest person. And I just thought, why does that matter, right? I'd be much more interested in tracking who's giving the most money away. And so I just appreciated Joe's comments about, you know, just being focused on himself and how he could help other people and bring them forward and not compete. And I thought that was fascinating from someone who is so focused on goals, both in the physical and personal realm. One of the lines I loved, he said, is that where courage and confidence intersects is where the magic happens. And I thought that was so powerful and, I mean, so true. Right? And who doesn't want magic in their lives? That's right. That's right. From a financial literacy perspective, Joe mentioned one of the goals that he and Anthea, his wife, had around life insurance and about his goal to achieve enough resources so that she could continue her lifestyle for 10 years if something happened to him. And I wanted to bring that up, Cami, because I think life insurance is something in our work that I see people not really thinking about. Folks, in my experience, just don't know how to think about life insurance. And I thought that was a really nice way that he brought it up. I think when it comes to married couples in particular, if one person were to die, it can leave the surviving spouse and the family, if if there are children, without a lot of resources. And one way to fill any gaps is with life insurance, but that's not the only solution. Being able to accumulate enough resources to cover the need is, is another way to make sure that, that there are financial resources available for the survivor and any uh, other family members to continue to move forward without a gap in their spending and their goals in the grieving process as well. 
Sandy, when clients maybe don't have enough resources for that and they need insurance to cover it, how do those conversations go? You know, it's a tough conversation. We don't want to think about death. How do you bring this up with clients to get them comfortable and get them talking about what the right number is at 10 years, you know, whatever the right number is to them? Yeah. So there's a lot of conversation that we have with clients to figure out what their goals are. And you're right. It's not a conversation that people want to talk about, but from a wealth planning perspective, it's such an important conversation and one that we can't shy away from. And so we do a lot of probing with clients to really find out what are their goals. If one or both partners died, what would life look like? What would they want it to look like? And then we build from there. And so for some folks, they do look at a shorter runway of making sure there's enough resources so that the survivor can kind of get through the initial period and maybe go back to work if that's something that he or she would otherwise plan to do, or for longer periods of time, if there's no goal around getting back to work. That's how we think about it. And when there aren't enough resources, we'll do a lot of long-term projections to figure out whether the resources are there or not. And if they are not there, one way to fill that gap is with a life insurance policy. And we look at term policies usually because they provide resources for a certain term of time. That's where the name comes from. And the idea is that over time, the clients will either continue to accumulate more resources, so they'll need less insurance, or as they continue to live, their need for insurance also decreases because they've already covered the cost of their lifestyle between now and then. Do you find that people are overinsured? And then what do you do in those situations? When they're are situations of overinsurance, that's a happy problem because you can always cut back. I think the trickier situations are when people are underinsured and when there might be a health situation or some insurability problem and they can't get insurance. Those are the much harder situations to address. And so life insurance is something that folks should be looking at particularly when their financial responsibilities expand. That can happen when people enter into long-term relationships, whether they're married or not. Certainly if they decide to have children or have other family members that they want to take responsibility for, those are good times to look at insurance. People who are single and just are taking care of themselves probably don't need insurance. (laughs) And Certainly looking at insurance when you're younger and naturally more insurable can be a really helpful thing. That's interesting because there's that balance of get it early where you might get better rates or wait till you really need it. So there's sort of a sweet spot. Is there any recommendation or any thoughts there? You want to make sure that you're waiting until there's a need and you can identify the need. And then you look at putting insurance in place based upon the need and the cost of the insurance. You know, maybe you round up a little bit and cushion yourself because you can always reduce insurance over time. And the way you do that is let's say um, you decide that you need $3 million of life insurance rather than buying one $3 million life insurance policy, you could buy two $1.5 million life insurance policies. So that over time, as you're accumulating more resources and as your need for insurance decreases, you can ultimately cancel one of the policies as when you don't need it anymore. So Sandy, you talked about health 
and insurance being something that we think about health that made me think about something that Joe talked about, a line he used that really I loved was his fitness and he's gotten really into these now ultra marathons and all these achievements, his 400 day goal. And he said, a strong body carries a strong mind. And I think that's really powerful. And I love that he doesn't just do it himself. It's also something he's spreading the word with his business with the book he wrote, and he even offered us offline any help he could give us personally in achieving our goals, he was there for us. He really, he stands by what he believes. And I just really was powerful. Yeah, I agree, Cammie. And I loved how he gave examples for strengthening not only his body, but his mind too, with listening to all those TED Talks and reading books. And I hope that's something that our Money Tales listeners take away with themselves is this idea there's always ways to learn more, especially about money, right? We hope these conversations that we record every week help increase your knowledge, create curiosity, and cause you to want to learn more, whether it's on a technical money matter topic or an emotional one. We can always all get better with money. Absolutely. And Cameron, I think this is a great time to thank our Money Tales listeners. We're so glad that you listen every week. We're having a blast recording these conversations. We love talking about money. It's really fun to be able to, to talk about it with such great, interesting guests who let us into their lives and, and share all. It's been amazing. And what we'd love to hear from you is if you want to tell us something, ask a question, please email podcasts at Asperient. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks all. Have a great week. And we'll be back next week with another wonderful guest. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks. And we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.